Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Well, we are continuing on in our series called Proclaim. It's through the book of John. And as we go through the book of John, uh, what we have said is that Jesus in this book makes claims and he has called us to proclaim his name. And as we go through the book of John, I want to encourage you that we want you to keep up with the readings in this uh, book. So Uh, in our newsletter that we send out on a weekly basis, uh, we basically put in there a reading schedule so you can anticipate each book or rather each chapter that we're going to go through. And we have a commentary that we put in there. Our teaching pastor, Rasul Berry, actually creates a commentary that I work off of. You can have access to that. That's in the newsletter. If you want that, please email info at bridgechurchnyc.com. That's info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You'll get our weekly newsletter that not only keeps you updated with what we're preaching on, but it also keeps you updated with what God is doing in our midst. So we're continuing on in the book of John. It's kind of an amazing story where Jesus comes on the scene and he ends up getting this guy, John the Baptist, to acknowledge that he is the Christ. But also with John the Baptist, there are several other people who follow him. You have Peter, you have Andrew, you have Philip, and you have Nathaniel. Here, Jesus starts a movement, and Jesus' movement right now is five people. The Jesus movement begins not with a, a big public speech, but he will eventually have these five people, and he will do his first miracle. He'll turn water into wine. Now, it's interesting, Because as we look at the life of Jesus, sometimes we forget that before these five people came, no one knew who Jesus was. If you look in the rest of John, when he does a miracle, they'll say, aren't you Joseph's boy? They can't even name his name. Because most of Jesus' life, he was anonymous. Jesus is mostly unknown. In fact, what's interesting is Um, if you've ever seen the iceberg illustration, the iceberg illustration is saying that 80% of the iceberg is underwater and only 20% is out of the water. When you look at the life of Jesus, 90% of his life is unseen. Yet 10% of his life is seen. 10% of his life is heralded. I mean, if Jesus' life was a book, we pick it up on the 30th chapter. And then three chapters later, it ends. We only know Jesus for three years of his life. And so one of the interesting things that we see is that most of Jesus' life were hidden seasons and hidden years. It's funny because when people say, I want to be like Jesus, they're not talking about the hidden years. Praise God. They're not talking about the wilderness. They're not talking about the cross. They're talking about the big moments. I want to do the miraculous like you, Jesus. Well, are you willing to admit that Jesus is most of his life? People didn't know his name. The hidden seasons, the hidden years. And maybe if Jesus has hidden years, maybe you'll have hidden years too. That maybe, just maybe, God is allowing you to grow more familiar with being invisible than being acclaimed. That maybe, just maybe, you 
feel this potential that is inside of you that's been building up over decades and in you, there are hidden dreams, hidden hopes, hidden desires, hidden gifts, a hidden vision. And like a bear hibernating in the woods, you can't wait for your time. And you think inside of yourself, Lord, I have so much potential as to what I could be. And there is so much potential as to what I could do. Hiddenness. When I um, first started preaching, I was um, about 23, and then I started preaching in a college ministry. And so, um, you know, I'd be up there every week. And then a pastor invited me to come on his teaching team at his church. So I moved my family from Texas to North Carolina to be on his teaching team. But then when I got up there, he decided that he wanted to switch it up and he wanted this other guy to teach and not me. And I was like, I wish you told me that in Texas, praise God, instead of moving my family. And then what he said was, hey, we won't have you preach, but you can MC. <laughs> MC, that's when you invite the other preacher to preach. Amen, amen, yeah. And I was like, oh, wow. And I thought to myself, I, I thought this was going to be the moment that you were going to use me. And I was at that church for three years, hidden. And I think that when we're in these moments of hiddenness, we think to yourself, God, are you wasting my time? Moreover, do you see me? Did you see, do you see what I have done? Do you see how I'm gifted? Do you see what I can do? Do you see me? And it is very easy to mistake unseen for unimportant. Because all of us, what we're wrestling with is all around us in our culture, there's always this potential to be a public figure. And yet most of us will end up being hidden figures for many seasons of our life, being unseen and unknown. And yet, it is within the hidden years that there is the surprising birthplace of spiritual greatness. It's when God is hiding you. It's when he's forming your character, when he's shaping you. It is within those hidden years. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. No task was beneath Jesus. Even though he was the son of God, he was born in a manger, born to a young, broken girl in Nazareth, born in a hard place, born oppressed and marginalized. And Jesus would serve. Jesus would care and love. Jesus takes the form of a servant. And so what Jesus will show us is what was the product of those hidden years? How did God shape him to be a servant? Because in your hidden years, God is shaping you and he is shaping and forming your character. Now, understand the setting of the scene. You, he, Jesus is in Cana. He's in this little village. Cana is like 50 people. Now, Cana is nine miles away from Nazareth, and Nazareth is about 500 people. In this little village and in this little town, everybody knows everybody, so as do little towns do. Everybody knows everybody, but they've known each other for generations after generations. Well, what was interesting is that 
in a wedding, a wedding would happen one to two times a year. So it was a regional event. Friends and family would come from all around to come to this event. As they would draw in, they really were waiting on the groom. The groom would actually build a house for his wife to be. When the house was built and all the preparations for the wedding were together, he would knock on the bride's door and invite her to a wedding. That's how the wedding began. The husband had to be ready. He had to have everything ready. And so that means that in, when we read this, there's a scene that's being set. Lots of anticipation, people coming from miles around. John chapter two, verse one through two, it says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. I don't have time to go into this, but the really thing that really blows my mind about this is that um, the way that writers write is they write people of first importance. In other words, if you write, you write Peter, James, and John, or Priscilla and Aquila. The person that you write first has first importance. Who is the person they write first? His mother. Then they write Jesus. Can you imagine Jesus being the plus one at a wedding, praise God? Like the person that you're just bringing along. If I was Jesus, I don't come to a wedding. I do the wedding, praise God. Or I'm going to raise somebody from the dead. I'm going to be the person of not, not the plus one. I'm going to be the person of first importance. But Jesus could be invited in a wedding and just chill. I just want to make a side note, commercial break. Jesus did not need to flex miracles every moment of the day. He didn't need to show his power every single moment because Jesus was humble enough just to be an attendee. Jesus could be an invited guest and just chill and not need the spotlight. Jesus didn't have to know his, everybody know his name all the time. Because Jesus, you know, I always find it funny when people at a wedding take more attention than the bride and the groom. I'm like, you don't get the point. It's their day. Even Jesus knew how to give attention to a different groom, praise God. Theologians know what that means, praise God. All right, so... Jesus is just at the wedding. He's humble enough to sit there and, and take it all in. And then <clears throat> John 1, 3, it says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. It's interesting. Wine uh, at that day, obviously is wine like we understand wine now. But wine was not only wine to, you know, drink for the sake of alcohol, oftentimes wine would get diluted with water and it would be the drink that everyone had. In other words, when they ran out of wine, they ran out of something to drink. So it was a social crisis. But remember, it was a social crisis because the husband making sure everything prepared was an indication of his preparedness, but also it was also legal ramifications. If you didn't have everything together, if food would run out or if wine would run out, they called it a breach of hospitality. Can you believe that? If you go over somebody's house, you're like, this is a breach of hospitality. Praise God. You need to have, you need some more chips here. Praise the Lord, right? Like that. So you could actually bring somebody up on charges for a breach of hospitality. We need to bring that law back. Praise God. But what I just want to acknowledge, what I want to acknowledge, if we could be honest, can we be honest? Let's be honest. This is not a crisis. I mean, yeah, it is. It is. It's wine. I mean, we need to have wine at a wedding. But it's not a crisis. 
Not when you consider the other miracles that Jesus did. Look, look, look at the other miracles. There's seven miracles, eight if you include the resurrection. There's seven miracles. This is the first miracle. Look at this. Look at this. Look, 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 look at what Jesus does in the rest of this. John 4, he heals the royal official son. He says, go and your son would live. The boy was going to die. He's alive, right? Heals the paralytic. Do you want to be healed? The man couldn't walk. Good, googly moogly. The feeding of the 5,000, the people weren't going to eat. Jesus takes bread. He feeds 5,000 people. Goes on. Jesus walks on water. I think that's impressive. He heals a man who was blind. The man couldn't see. The man didn't have any sight, praise God. And he raises Lazarus from the dead and says, Lazarus, come out. This is his miracle resume. And yet his first miracle is turning water into wine. Really, Jesus? But I think the reason why Jesus is so powerful, I think the reason why we see Jesus as such a dynamic servant is that Jesus didn't just show up for the big miracles. He was able to do the little miracles. He was able to do the small things that would in order to authenticate his name, wine at a wedding. But you see, Jesus was a servant, serving people in their time of need. When, when I was first coming up in ministry, I had a guy tell me, James, whenever you get an opportunity, no matter how many people are there, kill it. I said, okay. I did my first workshop. I had my handouts, praise God, right? I had a, it was overhead projector back in those days, praise God. I had my overheads, praise the Lord. I had everything together. 10 people in the room, five of them sleep. Praise the Lord, huh? Yeah. But I smashed that thing, I was sweating. I was like, and God, and I was all into it, right? Because here's what I learned early on in ministry, and I think when you think about greatness, if somebody gives me a small task, I should put just as much energy into the small tasks that I do the big ones. You see, if you are serving here in our church and you want to be exalted, really when I give you a small task, I'm giving you water and I'm expecting to see wine when it comes back. Sometimes I'll give people small tasks. I'm like, here you go. I get it back. I'm like, this water still. I don't see no like power in it. I mean, like, did you put energy into it? I mean, did you put yourself into it? Oh, you want the big moments. You want the big miracles. You want the big time. But can you be faithful with little moments? Faithful with little, and he will give you much. If God, listen, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a leader, if you're a teacher, and you want more, whatever serving opportunity God has given you, kill it. Turn it into wine. Make it powerful and put all your prayer, all your energy, and all your insight into the little things, and God will give you more. That's it. But maybe you just want the, the stage. Maybe, and if God can't give you the little miracles, then he can't trust you with the big ones. Amen, James. Amen. Praise the lamb that was slain. Listen. <laughs> One of the leadership qualities that we say is if serving is beneath you, then leadership is beyond you. Wow. Uh, is there something beneath you? You know, I was talking to the residents, the church planning residents here. Yeah, there's a reason why we have them moving chairs. Because we have them doing the hard things. 
before the stage, before they're off doing church plants. We have them doing the hard things. In this city, can you prove that you are a servant before you're a speaker? Amen, James. Amen. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. God is good. John 1.3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, this is very interesting because what Jesus has done here is he, he shows that he is dependable and reliable. What has most likely happened is that Joseph, we don't hear of him anymore. Joseph most likely has died. And just like any widow, if she has a son who is an adult, he becomes the man of the home. What's interesting to note here is that Mary had become, to, she had come to the place where she could depend on Jesus. Most likely she always called on Jesus. Most likely she always asked Jesus to do small things and she could count on him. Notice before he does his first miracle, his family and his friends thought he was reliable. I find it interesting. One of the qualifications of an elder is you must be above reproach with outsiders. The reason why I think it says that is because it doesn't want to create a pastor or a leader that's great on the inside, but he does not recognize on the outside of his home. In other words, sometimes we, we like it when we are being authenticated by people inside but not outside. But it also happens in reverse. Sometimes we're great on stage, but our home is a mess. Oh, you're great on your job. Are you good as a roommate? Oh, your friends think you're great. What does the family think of you? You see, the reality is what he shows us is that even his mom spoke well of him. She believed in his ministry before outsiders did. Now, the other thing that is interesting in this text is that the way that Jesus' mom says this. Jesus' mom is still a mom, you know what I'm saying? And mothers make statements and then they just give a stare. They don't even make requests. Now you gotta read this, you gotta read this text right. He says, she says they ran out of wine. You know, you know what she did? She's like, my mama did. My mom walk in. Hey, baby. That trash filling up. <laughs> Them dishes ain't gonna get done by themselves. She she makes a statement, then she gives a stare. In other words, she's not making a request, she's actually giving an expectation. Now read the text again. They ran out of wine. She stares. She expects that Jesus is going to do something about it. And Jesus' response is a very powerful response. John 1, 4, or rather 2, 4, it says, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. This is when you don't repeat everything in the Bible to your mother. Don't make this your Bible memory verse. Amen? This is when knowing the language makes a difference. When Jesus says woman, listen, when Jesus says woman, because when you look um, throughout the book of John, he uses the phrase woman often. In fact, when Jesus is on the cross, John 19, verse 26, he says, woman, behold your son. Jesus wasn't trying to be disrespectful. 
In fact, he was honoring because the word in the Greek really means ma'am. You remember Jesus, that's his mom, but he also created her. There's this tension. (laughs) There's this tension that he has. That on some level, at some point, he had to let her know our relationship's going to change. Amen. (laughs) But men, I think this is important for you to know. That there came this point where with his mom, he had to create relational clarity. You see, what I'm saying is Jesus wasn't disrespecting his mother, but he was disconnecting from her. You see, the reality is, is that a parent must be honored, but they also must be given a boundary of influence. Because if boundaries aren't established, a mother mother naturally will continue often, if not told that. That's why the Bible says leave and cleave. Some mothers know this already. They do it naturally. When I married my wife, I remember one of the most trepidant, like one of the most scary moments was the day before we got married, my mom and my wife-to-be were walking to the car. My mom has sat in the front seat ever since I could drive a car since I was 16. I was 23 years old. We were walking to the car, and I did the bold thing. I walked around to my side and let them figure it out. I was scared to death, right? I was so scared because I was like, my mom is probably going to sit. And my mom, I'll never forget, she went to the back seat. And, I, and, you know, I pretended like I wanted her up there. I was like, no, mom. She was like, no, no, that's her seat now. You see, some mothers just realize that things have to change in the relationship. But that's why the Bible says leave and cleave. But what often happens is men often have an immovable emotional umbilical cord attached to their mom, oftentimes making them subject to their mother's whims. Constantly being at the place where they can never show that they're a man now. And the reality is that if a relational clarity isn't made, he'll never feel like he's a man. Sisters, hear me. Be very careful when a man says, He loves a strong woman because sometimes that's code word for mommy. You see, oftentimes men, yes, they want a woman, but oftentimes they want a woman to do everything for them. They weren't looking for a wife. They were looking for a mother wife. Someone that can be strong enough. So sisters, hear me when I say this. You like it that he does everything for you. You like it that he does everything you say do. You like it, but be very careful because the man that you can control now will be the man you have to hold later. He'll be the same person you got to emotionally hold up constantly because he's never cut that umbilical and he needs emotional support constantly. I'm not talking about a man who's weak and emotional. We need men who are sensitive, praise God, absolutely. But what we don't need are men who are afraid to lead. I got more time at the six o'clock, praise God. I can, I, I, can, I, I, can, I, can, I can, I can lead on this a little bit more. All right, so I'm gonna I'm 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 mess with y'all a little bit. I'm gonna I'm play with this. 
oftentimes, oftentimes um, my sisters, I, especially if you haven't had a strong man in your home, when you see a, a guy, you want him to lead, but it's, it's sometimes it's foreign to you because you didn't have either a strong man or a man there at all. And so what our culture says is, girl, do it. You don't need a man. You don't need a man. And you hear that so much, but then you get a man. It's like, do, do you need him or do you want to be in a relationship? But do you want him to lead? And the interesting thing is a lot of times when we're like, I don't want a man to lead me. Well, okay. You, it's two o'clock in the morning and somebody's about to break in your house. I think you want him to lead then, praise God. <laughs> or you just, you just cool with it. Like you get the gat and tell him to go, to, you go to bed, you go night night, baby. <laughs> I'm gonna get you some milk, I'm gonna take care of this. <laughs> what? Like, do you want him to lead or what? You're like, no, I, I'm a, do, so you like it that he chills and you just go get a job and he's on the couch chilling with chips and the, you cool with that? Okay, you, then what you really want is a leader, praise God. But part of that then is sometimes when men get into relationship, they're just weak at leadership. And women tend to be detailed. Hallelujah. Yeah. So they, 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 they see the weaknesses more often. So what I, what I encourage is sisters, when you're dating or when you're getting married and you see those weaknesses, encourage him into the man he's called to be. Okay, because you're going to see his weaknesses in infrared. All that was free, praise God. I got to move. I got to go. I got to go. Now, now, there were, there, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Here's one thing that we lose in the story of Jesus turning water into wine. These water pots, one, are huge. They hold about 30 gallons of water, and when it turns into wine, it is incredibly heavy, one. But, but two, the water pots aren't like for drinking water. This is not drinking water. These are for rites of purification. This is where they would wash plates and cups hands and feet. This was dirty water. This was not the kind of water that you would ever think someone would drink. That's what made the miracle so shocking. It wasn't just water. It was soapy and dirty. And so Jesus, in this moment of miracles, tells the servants in verse 8, he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water out knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Can, 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 we, just, can we just have that honest conversation here real quick? Jesus don't do miracles like I would do miracles, Okay. Do you know the one word Jesus does not say in this miracle? Wine. If I was turning water into wine, the one thing I would definitely say is wine. See, understand, like for wine to come about, you first need a seed, and the seed goes into the ground, and then you get a vine, and then you get the vine, you get grapes, grapes get crushed, then you get wine. He didn't tell us any of that. He just creates wine. 
And I just think Jesus just underplayed this miracle. Now, if it was me, praise God, they would come over and they'd say, Jesus, we ran out of wine. I'm like, you ran out of wine? You ran out of wine? Everybody gather around. Everybody gather around. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Just watch. Come, everybody come, come close. Come close. Come close. Look, 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 look. You come, come, look, look. Look in there. Look in there. You see this, right? And, and as I get, get this wash bucket, this wash, this, you see this soapy water. You see this soapy water, this soapy wash bucket. Here we go. Here we go. Are you ready? You're ready. Okay, here we go. I'd start low now. This is, this is me doing the miracle. I'd go, wine, 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 wine the bucket, 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 wine. Jesus didn't do this miracle, right? Isn't this amazing that Jesus wine the bucket? No, I'm kidding. But that Jesus... That Jesus brought no attention to himself in the miracle. In fact, at the end, they gave credit to the wrong groom, praise God. You see, because Jesus is masterful at giving other people the credit, that's how you got saved. Jesus gave you credit for something you never did. See, that's the miracle is not only what he did, but how he's able to diffuse credit. People didn't even know he did it. But I, I think what is amazing is who Jesus uses. You see, Jesus didn't use the master of the ceremony. You, you know what master? That's the MC. I would use the MC. That's the person, you know, he's articulate, he's fun, he gets the party going. He doesn't use the MC. Because we have a tendency to think that upfront people are the people God wants to use the most. He doesn't use Mary. Mary, his family member, we would presume that Mary would be the one that he uses because this is the one whom his mother is. And he doesn't use the bride or the groom. But the thing that trips me out is he doesn't use the disciples. You remember the five guys he just got? The people that are walking closest to him, the people that are walking closest to him, and yet he's not using them. The people that had just been walking with him, they walked into the wedding with him. Don't you think they thought they were going to be the ones being used? We often assume that people with social, political, or even spiritual status will be God's first choice. The scripture says in 1 Samuel 16 and 7 that the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or his height or his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Maybe being the most noticeable does not mean you're the most useful. Maybe the person that you think, oh, I cannot, I cannot tell you how many people I started off in seminary with, and I'm telling you, I was in class with people that could have taught the class. They were spiritually profound, incredible people. They would work out in the gym, and they, they were these Adonises. Like, they'd work out. They were amazing. They could communicate, but God didn't use them. Because sometimes the people with the greatest spiritual resume are the first one God's rejecting. 
because they're too busy looking at their resume than they are God. Be careful who you elect to be the next one. God could be looking at the person you never thought. In fact, God could be looking at you. God could be looking at you. Because God is looking at your heart. He's looking at your heart more than he's looking at your skills. When I first went to plant a church, all my friends that planted churches were really, like they did really good in school. And when they talk about their church plant, they pulled out pie charts and graphs. I could tell stories, praise God. I was like, oh my God. (laughs) I couldn't measure up with these guys. And so I said, if that's planting a church, I can't do it. Because these guys have it together. And and they would be in seminary and they're getting A's. I'm getting, praise God, say amen, amen. I'm getting grace. I mean, I was, I, what I'm saying is, I, I, listen, I, gra- I gra- people always shock when I say that. I graduated high school with a 1.7. So I should not, they should have rethought that, praise God. I struggled to read. I still am not a great reader. I don't think you hear what I'm saying. I was shocked when he called me. And there were people with better insight, better skills, better resumes, better grades, everything. But God does not see like, do you hear what I'm saying? God doesn't see like we see. That means you are looking at someone now and God is not ignoring them, but he's not going to use them right now. He just doesn't see the way we see because all he's looking at is the heart. But let me say a word about the disciples. The disciples who, who walked into, could you imagine you walked into a wedding with Jesus? I mean, I'd be like, you know what I'm saying? You know when you're with somebody that gets attention, maybe you get some amount of Praise God, just know who you are, right? But you know you're with somebody that gets a lot of attention, you get kind of a lot of attention. Again, categorize yourself as you need. But I'm just saying, you, you walk in, you're just like, you're with him. Jesus is, now, Jesus is not very well known, but you're like, this, y'all, y'all about to meet. He's going to be a big deal in about a couple years, all right? So this is a potential, lots of potential in this guy, right? So you're sitting down, you're next to him, right? And then you, all of a sudden, you hear there's a miracle about to start. What would you think? You're like, here we go. <laughs> miracle, you don't do a miracle, right? All right, all right. But he used, listen, what's the name of the people he used? We don't know. All we know is that their name is servant. It is amazing that the first people God used were unnamed servants. It's amazing because as God chose to use unnamed servants, the disciples are sitting there and they are in the not yet season of their life. Peter is going to be amazing. Peter is going to write actual books in the Bible. Peter is going to be the leader of the church. Peter is going to be the speaker. Peter is going to be the one everyone's looking to, but not yet, Peter. There's some things you need to learn. Just sit next to me. And watch me work. It is when you are within the not yet season of your life that you will see God blessing, choosing, and using other people while you walk close to Jesus. And you thought because I came in with Jesus, you would use me and you're using people I don't even know. 
What happens when you're in the not yet season of your life? We are subject in that season to jealousy, envy, and comparison. To look at them and say, why not me? And it is within the hidden moment and the hidden season of our lives that we have to fight the natural jealousy and envy that seeps up with inside of us. And why do we read chapters like Philippians chapter two? Because it says he humbled himself. Hiddenness is about humility. And it is within humility. Jealousy finds its death in humility in the hidden season of your life. The humble heart realizes that God uses different people at different times per his plan. That God chooses, uses, exalts, and takes down, and that does not mean you're being overlooked. In fact, if God is looking at you, you've never been overlooked. The question is, does God exalt or does man? Does a seminary exalt or does man? Or, or does God, does, who lifts people up? The Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due season. God exalts. And so I wonder if anyone is in the not yet season of their life right now. If you are grappling with, you know, there are some people who you look at and you're like, God's using them and they still feel like they're in the not yet because they see more. I wonder if you're in the not yet part of God's plan. And my question is this, are you mature enough to wait? Are you mature enough to wait? And you say, amen, I'll wait as long as you need. I say, okay, a decade. Mm. Oh, okay, 15 years. Whoo, my shot clock, amen. It's time, it's time, it's time, it's go time. That pastor said it was my season, you know what I'm saying? I thought this was my season. Church, listen to what I'm about to tell you. What if 90% of your life was in the not yet? You go, oh man, I don't want that. Then don't say you want to be like Jesus. Because 90% of his life was in the not yet. But Jesus grew in the not yet. You know, I don't mean this in a bad way. Do you want a long life or a full life? Because God could, God, Jesus teaches us that 33 years can be more impactful than 333 years. It just depends on not how long you live, what you did while you lived. Do you want a long life or a full life? He lived three full years pouring out his life and he was more used than any other human. Wait on the Lord. The Bible goes on to say, John 2, 9 and 10, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not, he didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then pour wine. But you kept the good wine until now. I'm just so amazed that there is this moment where the master of the ceremony is like actually like crediting 
the bridegroom for having a great plan. And he messed his plan up. Oh, this is such an incredible picture of the gospel. That we thought we were going to be more, but our plans failed. And yet, because of the righteousness of Christ, only because of his righteousness, we are like that bridegroom getting credit for something we never did. He says, look, you, you gave the good wine, but I just can't get my mind off these servants. These servants, you gotta, I, I think the way it worked is that the servants filled up the water and they must have taken some out. When did it turn into wine? When did it turn into wine? I believe it turned into wine while they were walking to the master of ceremony. In other words, water turned into wine while they walked in obedience. It was while they're walking, they saw miracles happen. It was while they walked in obedience that they saw God do what only God can do. It was while they were walking. It wasn't like you and I would. Well, God, I mean, this is water and this is soapy water. And if I go over to the soapy water, to the MC, and I need all this anxiety now because I got to figure it out. But God says, just walk in obedience. And while you walk in obedience, he turns water into wine. God will give you sometimes unreasonable requests, but will you walk in obedience? I can't tell you how many Saturday nights my wife will look at me and say, how you feeling about the sermon? I'll be like, it's, it's just not coming together. And then I'll preach. And then after she'll be like, babe, God, I really feel like that blessed me. And you know really what I'm saying on Saturday night? Baby, this ain't nothing but water. And I pray and I pray and I'm like, God, you gotta do something. I don't see it. I don't see it. And then when I get done, people will say it's wine. And what I'm telling you is that it is while you walk and you do. That is why we walk by faith, not by sight. The servants didn't see just water. They trusted that it would turn into wine. And God, he is calling you into a season of your life where you cannot fill in the blanks with every answer. But God's miracles, the miraculous, is not intended to happen based upon the equations that I've placed in my mind, based upon my ingenuity and my insight, miraculous and miracles happen when God does way above my imagination. Can you be obedient in the small things? Can you see God transform people through your life? It is while you walk that you will see miracles happen. And God is working behind the scenes because you are gonna come into a trial in your life. One day you're gonna get a doctor's appointment and some of you may hear cancer. But when you know God works behind the scenes, you know if he turned water into wine, I know he can turn that diagnosis of cancer into healed because he works behind the scenes. 
If you see insufficient funds, one day you can know God can turn water into wine. I know I could be abundantly blessed by this time next year. In other words, it is a faith walk. And as you trust him, God does the miraculous through you. I pray that the Lord would keep you as he hides you. I pray that the Lord would keep you as he hides you. Because a hidden season is not a forgotten season. And just because you're anonymous doesn't mean you're abandoned. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for changing us, making us more like you. We praise you, God, for your grace over our lives. Holy Spirit, even now, would you just allow this word to just settle in our hearts, touch us, God, change us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would um, remind us that you see us. Remind us that you see us, God. Remind us that you see us. You exalt your time in Christ's name. I wonder if you'd stand with me. How powerful it is that we would use wine as an illustration of his blood. Jesus, in Revelation, we see this incredible banquet where there's wine flowing, where relationship with him is flowing. And he uses a picture of wine in Revelation to talk about this banquet that never ends. But he also uses wine as a picture of his blood. And it is through the blood that we get through the banquet. It is through his death that we end up with him. Tonight, as you consider communion, taking the body and the blood of Jesus, we encourage those that if you are unsure of a relationship with God tonight, we encourage you not to feel that this is some kind of symbolic act that you have to do or some kind of ritual that you have to participate in. In fact, we encourage you to take time and really consider your walk with Jesus. But for those of us that know God, my prayer is that you would be able to take the body and the blood and allow this moment to deal with unaddressed areas that are maybe jealousy and envy. It may be feeling abandoned, but allow God to speak to those areas. Maybe you're, needing seeing, maybe you're needing to see God do the miraculous in your life. And the Spirit of God reminded you of that work that God does. But I pray tonight that you would just rest in the promises of God. And you would allow him to address the broken areas in your life. We're going to have the communion come at this time. You'll come down the aisles and go out the outer aisles. Come down the aisles and go out the outer aisles. Come up at your own time. Holy Spirit, we thank you for this moment. God, would you minister to us? Would you remind us that you are building character in us? Holy Spirit, would you unleash us to be the men and women you've called us to be? Father God, speak to my heart tonight. Tell me where, where, where have I not been trusting you? Where have I been 
allowing myself to fall into the trap of feeling unseen by you? How have I felt abandoned by you? Holy Spirit, I pray, I pray that we would be seen tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Come down these aisles, out the outer aisles. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.